You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Because um, there are dads that are here in the room, and, and you know that, that you give your heart and your soul to your family, and, and you work on that, and you seek to love God in such a way that He makes you the best dad possible where you're at. And then I also know that there are dads in the room that you say, I've, I've lo- I look back at being a dad and I wish I had done different things. And so there, when you go through this Happy Father's Day thing, there's a sense, even a sense maybe of guilt in that. Because you say, I'm, I wasn't the father that I needed to be. And then you may be in the room and you may say, I had a dad that loved me and I knew it. He hugged and kissed on me and, and all those things and, and just kind of hung out with me. And then there are dads, uh, you, you've had dads that were distant. Maybe the thing that they sought after most was that the money, but they would say, this is to provide for family. And yet they were gone all the time. You say, I wish they had been a little bit closer than they were. And then there's even the the dads that have been abusive over the years. And and yet, we we come to this part and and just talk about Father's Day, understanding that when we talk, talk about God, we have to understand that God is a perfect father. And then it really doesn't matter whether you're a good dad or a bad dad or somewhere in between, none of us measure up to the goodness of God. We all fall short of that. I mean, that's kind of what Scripture says, doesn't it? That we fall short of the glory of God. Well, that would be all His attributes. And we would fall short of that. And so as much as we may want the perfect Father to be in our life, whether past or present or even future, we are not as good as God. We just seek Him and say, God, help me at this point, to live out what you call me to do as a dad. And so when we talk about the measure of God's love, how, how do we know that God loves us? Well, He's displayed it for us. He's given us some pictures, some, some things that help us to understand that. And we know He loves us by faith, and it was that love that was displayed on Calvary for us in allowing His only Son to die on our behalf so that we could have a relationship with Him. That's really the bottom line when we talk about God's love, because it was that sacrificial death and, and that glorious resurrection that kind of proves that God was invested in us and that He loves us. So when we get to the book of Titus and we're in this series, we're, well, I know we've been in chapter 3, we're jumping back to chapter 2 at this point, but um, we, we need to understand that false teachers were there. They were rebellious men teaching things that were leading some folks astray. They were deluding or altering the doctrine of the church or the gospel. They were bringing confusion to local house churches. And so when we look at this, we understand that Paul was given in, giving instruction to Titus to appoint elders and leaders and his overseers for the purpose of teaching sound doctrine. For the, for the purpose of making sure that everything was in line and guarding that doctrine. And so Paul is continuing 
this encouragement and instruction to Titus when we get to chapter 2. Titus is, the idea is that every believer should walk in sound doctrine because it's important to, to the whole gospel. If we look at Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 has a, a big statement about the power of the gospel. And it's found in verse 16, for Paul wrote out for the, to the Romans, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so Paul is sharing with Titus this whole idea that the gospel is extremely important. And sound doctrine as part of the gospel cannot be compromised. Um, we're going we're gonna to play a little game. And I, what I need is I need, I need two, um, two volunteers. Luke, thank you. And, um, and, and uh, let's see. Clay. Clay, Clay could help. Clay, come on up here. All right, Luke and Clay. How you doing? How you doing, Clay? Good to see you. We've already shaken hands, but you know this game? You know what it's called? Jenga. Yeah, this is just not your average Jenga. It is just a little bit bigger, isn't it? And so you guys come on over here to Jenga. And so what, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this just a little bit. And, um, and it, it really, there's no prizes, so it doesn't really matter if you, if you like, win. Okay, so, um, so, so don't get your hopes up. Uh, so, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about this. And let's just say that this tower represents the gospel. All the gospel, it represents the gospel. And so if, what we're going to do is we're going we're to talk about different pieces of the gospel. And uh, let's just talk about God for a second. Okay, we know that God is almighty. He is creator. And God, God does what does? He Blank, sus, gobs and gobs. What is it? He loves us. So if we were to take out the love of God, so go ahead, Luke, why don't you start it? Pull out the love of God. Ah, there we go. Okay, so this, so that block represents, we're just going to leave it off because this way I won't have to pick up as much stuff at the end. Um, <laughs> We're just going to say that re represents the love of God. And let's say we take that out and we view God as this, this, um, this oppressor of, of man saying, and we're going to take out the love of God, but he makes sure everything is done right. And if you don't do it right, he's going to hit you over the head with a two by four. Okay. All right. Your turn, Clay. Oh, hey, don't, don't tip it this early. I got a lot more to talk about. You, okay, you good? Uh, he's got it. He's got it. So you can, yeah. There you go. Awesome, good job. All right, so so let's talk about that for a second. Let's just let's say we take out the justice of God, but we focus on the love of God, and we we consider God is all love, but there is no just part of God. There's no wrath part of God. He's just all loving. 
And so he would never send anybody to hell. So if we took that out of the gospel, some things happen. All right, so let's pull out another one. All right, all right, so that's, that's the next one. So let's say that this block represents Scripture, and the doctrine of Scripture. Let's just say that, that this particular thing has to do with errors. You look through Scripture and you say, well, these two pieces of Scripture don't fit, therefore one must be an error. And so we consider inerrancy. And so let's take that out. Let's say, yeah, the Bible is just a suggestion for how we're to live life, but we take that out. We're, we're, we're getting into a, an area that if we start taking pieces out of the gospel, out of doctrine, then we're running into trouble, aren't we? You see what's happening? All right, let's pull, pull another one out. Ah, uh, you're getting, getting smart, going for the middle one. All right, so that block represents salvation. And so we say, if this block represents salvation, we're going to qualify who can be saved and who can't be saved. But the Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if we don't believe that, and we pull it out of the gospel, we're doing some things to the overall effect of the gospel in life. Let's pull out another one. All right, we're, we're starting to lose all the middle pieces. You notice that? So this is the block that talks about Jesus coming back. This is, this is eschatology. What do we believe about Jesus' return? And there are lots of different versions of what people think about Jesus' return, but the fact is, He is coming back. But if we take that out and say, He's not coming back, and we don't think about what happens after we die, or even when He comes back and and he calls his church home, then we may not care about what the future looks like. All right, let's pull another one. Good. And so if we keep, just keep on going, just keep on going. So if we start messing with the gospel and taking out pieces of the gospel or compromising parts of the gospel, we weaken the gospel. You see how this is working? Clay, you're intent on winning this, aren't you? I think, oh, you guys are good. Okay, all right, go high. Now you got, pull one, pull one from the bottom. Ah, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Go for that one. These guys, are, these guys are pretty good. You see, the gospel, the gospel is what Paul was writing to Titus about. And he, what he was saying is, we can't compromise the gospel at any part. We can't pull out pieces of doctrine and say they're not important. They're all important. And as, and as much as we may... 
Well, that's, that's not really the tower I anticipated falling. This could be it. It's not. This is, this is hard work. And now you're glad that I didn't call on you to come up here, right? It's, it's okay if it goes. It's all right. All right. All right. Good job. Thanks, Coach. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Maybe, yeah, later. Later. So what's the ultimate goal of the gospel? If it's to be contained or, or maintained or guarded, what's the goal of the gospel? It would be that we would understand what it is to have a relationship with God. It's essentially to make sure that God is receiving glory. It's to glorify His name. And so when we start compromising the gospel, we begin to compromise the things that allow us to become close to God, that allow us this relationship with Him that, that He desires for us, and ultimately, really, we desire. We desire to have a relationship with Him. And so all Scripture, although it may seem to address earthly behaviors and attitudes, is really about drawing us to Him. And when our attitudes and behaviors are things that don't glorify Him, they really pull us away. It's, it puts us at odds with God instead of being intimately acquainted and connected to Him. And so when we read, this, this thing's all over the place, when we read in Scripture about this is a behavior that we ought to check on and change and, and work on to, to live out as holy before God, it's really for our benefit and our relationship with Him. And so when Titus writes these things, he writes to Titus and he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Speak the things that keep this intact. And continue to speak those things. And what he's saying is, I, I want you to, be, to encourage, but I want you to exhort folks, to call them back into line. It's really about putting this in and where somebody compromises it, putting that back in to create stability. And so that's what Paul is telling Titus to do in this relationship with the local churches on the Isle of Crete. And so the gospel applied to our lives, we develop a faith that is re relevant to the life that we live in the marketplace in which we exist. And so if, if your life exists at Starbucks, or your life exists at Walmart, or your life exists at Biscuitville, or I figure there'd be an amen in there somewhere on that one. Um, yeah, if, if that's where you spend your time, if you spend your time at the hospital, if you spend your time in a school, your life is such, is to be lived out within this sound doctrine so that you can glorify God and your relationship with Him won't be compromised. And so when Paul writes to Titus, he's encouraging that. These false teachers had penetrated the church and were creating issues in the church. And Paul was calling them back. 
And so we get to verse 2. We're going to talk about men, but really, as you, as you understand this, the, the things that we're talking about here in this passage, we, although they talk about men, they wouldn't really be exclusive to men. These could also um, be very applicable to, to ladies in the room. So, so don't think, oh, good, he's talking about guys, I'm off the hook. Uh, not so much, because if you really read this passage, it's going to encourage both men and ladies throughout this passage, and there seems to be some similarity between the, the things that are taught. So verse 2 says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. So what does that mean? Well, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a look around the room. Okay? Just take a peek around the room. Do you see anybody around you that is older? There really, truth be told, there should only be one person in here that looks around the room and says, I can't find anybody older. And it's whoever's the oldest person in the room, right? All right, so y'all, y'all see somebody that's older. All right, now find somebody that's younger. All right, you got it? So this, this passage applies to everyone in the room. Why? Because he's talking to, to, at this point, older men, but we're going to talk about younger men. And, and it really, it's older and younger, and all of, we're, we're in, in those categories regard, regardless of who we are, as long as we just look around the room. So we're going to be older than somebody, and we're probably going to be younger than somebody. So this fits. So verse 2 says, older men are to be temperate. Temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Tell you what, I'm gonna if I'm gonna Chuck, I'm gonna turn this off for just a second. That, that part didn't make any difference. It was supposed to hold it in place, and obviously it was not working. So, so we get to, get to this. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. So what, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me ask this. Have you ever been successful at living out the Christian life in some form or fashion? At anything? This, this, this means yes. Okay, so you've been successful at least at one thing, right? But how hard is it to sustain victory in any one of those situations? See, sustaining victory is so much harder, isn't it? So you can do a quick overcome of something, but then sustaining that is much more difficult. It's why it's more difficult to repeat as a champion in sports than it is to attain championship in sports. St. Louis Blues, for those of you that are Boston fans, I'm so sorry for you. Um, But I'm not real sorry. So they won their championship. Toronto in basketball won theirs. It was the first time for them as well. But the chances of them repeating goes down quite a bit. It's hard to repeat victory. And yet, 
we are, um, we are told that when we submit to God, that victory is really based on our submission or our connection to God, connection to the Father. So if we were to pick an area like anger, we may have a bent toward anger. Something happens, and we immediately fly off the handle. We get really good at it for one time, and then next time something comes up, we mess up. And you can pick your, pick your spot. There, there are a lot of things that, that may apply. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Well, these characteristics come to fullness as we stay in constant contact with God. Walking in the flesh means that we relate to God within sound doctrine. And so let's, let's look at this. Why old and older men? Why does Paul say older men ought to do this? And why is he telling Titus this to share? Well, we're going beyond the elders and the leaders. We're going to just about everybody within a congregation. He's saying older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Why? Start there. There are characteristics of older men that, that I think Paul was kind of picking on because he understood it. If you are walking with God as a man, then you have a learned dependence on God. You stop, stop relying on yourself for success and you begin to start to lean more into God in dependence of who God is for doing what God has called you to do. And so instead of trying to defeat anger with this self-will, I'm not going to get angry, I'm not going to get angry, I'm not going to get angry. Instead of doing that, you say, God, I'm turning this part over to you and allowing the Spirit of God to work in your life so that you don't have outbursts of anger. So learn dependence with humility. The second thing is I think Paul knew that older men were teachable. There's a teachability in, uh, of older guys that's at stake here. See, we figure out that we can't solve it all the time. You know, I've tried fixing things, and I didn't have the tools or I didn't have the knowledge, and I would go to somebody that did. And Paul understood that older men just understand where their limits are. And so if they don't know how to do it, they contact somebody that does. I'm still learning that in certain areas of my life. I'm still learning that with regards to plants and grass. And so Deb encourages me regularly, go talk to somebody that knows more than you. And so I get that, and, and I need that. I need that encouragement to, to be teachable in that. And the third thing is wisdom. The, there's an understanding that that older men should have wisdom. It's an applied knowledge that honors God. And so I've learned this about God, and I've stayed within these doctrines, and I've held on to that, and I'm learning to trust Him. And then when I get in situations, I'm learning to look to God for how to deal with that situation. And so there's wisdom that comes with that. Proverbs 20, 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength. No problem there. 
If I'm doing a lot of heavy moving, I'm calling somebody younger with muscles or calling somebody that's just worked out all their life. The glory of young men is their strength. The honor of old men is their gray hair. I'm loving that. When um, we were pulling out some old or saw some old pictures yesterday of, of different things, and we found a picture of Stephen. Now, you've seen Stephen here before, and you know that he is, he's slick. He's bald. Um, he hasn't always been bald. We found pictures of him where his hair was like big. Um, he he kind of looked like Simba, and so we, we would kind of call him that. And, and he had big hair, and he's lost it all. And then we found another picture of, of me, and I had blonde hair. I'm pretty sure it wasn't natural. But it, was, but it was real blonde. But gray hair is a symbol of wisdom. See, men are visual. We understand that picture. When you get gray, there should be a wisdom that comes with that. It just is because we get gray hair when we get older. That's the way it works. It's funny. I read this quote. And it, it's a, you're not going to hear me quote Buddha very often. And so, um, so take this for what it's worth, okay? You need to, you need to hear it because I just thought it was funny. It says, gray hairs are like angels sent by the God of death. And I was like, really? That's awesome. <laughs> Scripture likens it to having wisdom or honor. It says, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. The older men in their wisdom are able to dream dreams. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean? With all that is behind them, they understand things. And so when this talks about older men, older men dreaming dreams, is he can look back and remember and from that gain experience or gain from it wisdom from the experience. They see the faithfulness of God through the trials of life. And we, we need that, don't we? Especially as younger men, we need to know that life beyond whatever age you are, if I look to somebody older, life beyond this particular age is survivable. I need to hear that from somebody that's older than me. And yet there's somebody younger than me that's looking to me and saying, hey, is life survivable past 20? Well, based on my age, yes, it is. Is it going to be real easy? Maybe not. But I need that wisdom. I need to be able to see that. The younger men look ahead and see possibilities. And so older men dream dreams, young men see visions, and both are valuable. And as the sanctifying, the completing work of the Holy Spirit occurs, these are the characteristic Paul, characteristics Paul is telling Titus to promote. And so we get to the first one, to be temperate. What does it mean to be temperate? The ESV calls it sober-minded. The, um, the CSB says level-headed. We'll be level-headed. The, the word means to be sober or clear-headed. It's really a word that's used for the abstinence from wine. Or, if you wish, the effects of alcohol. 
because alcohol has its effects. You, you've seen it or you understand it, that it can blur reality. Alcohol blurs reality. It, it makes us have an inability to respond the way we should. It affects our reflexes. It dulls our senses. And, and you've seen this or heard about it. Sometimes it even alters somebody's personality. You may have heard it said that, you know, I just take one little drink, I loosen up a little bit. It alters personality. And yet Paul is telling him that, that you have to be sober-minded. You've got to be level-headed. You've got to consider this as an older man to be temperate because it can modify your decision-making, your decision-making processes. You may say, well, I don't even like what you said. And actually, the, it says, the Bible doesn't say not to drink. It says don't get drunk. I understand what the Bible says. But I'm getting more of the conviction that staying away from alcohol completely is a better way to witness in your life and to stay clear-headed so that you can hear and follow God. Considering what is at stake, I would ask this question. Are you using phrases like the Bible doesn't say don't get drunk or that it must be okay to drink? Are you using that as an excuse to do something that you want to do? Is that the question? Second thing, so we read that they are to be temperate. Second thing is dignified. So what comes to, word, what comes to mind when you think of the word dignified? I know what comes to mind for me. When I think dignified, it's like, you know, the voice gets a little lower, you sit up a little straighter, got to be dignified. And, and there's an English accent that comes with that. You know, I don't, to, to me, when I think dignified, my immediate, the image that comes to mind is a funeral director. I've known some funeral directors, and, and they weren't all that dignified, but I don't, so I don't even know why that comes together. But it's... To be dignified, it's, it's the idea of being worthy of respect. And so the, the question is, what sabotages respect for you? If we were to look at your life in great detail, what in your life would sabotage somebody's respect of you? And so that's what Paul is telling Titus to encourage the older men, is to guard that which is respectful. Or are you conducting your life in a manner worthy of respect before your spouse, before your children? before co-workers, before friends. What about spiritually? Are you respected spiritually? Third thing is to be sensible. We're in one's senses, and we've talked about this before. It's just curbing desires and, and those impulses. And by definition, some men really labor here. I understand how this works is, uh, you know, I'll be sitting around watching a game and I'll have this impulse, this great desire for a bag of potato chips. And what do I do? I seek to fulfill that desire. I go to the pantry. What I'm looking is to make sure Deb's not looking. It's just one of those things. But there are other things that, that guys would have a desire for and you can come up with a long list of them. But as we start to succumb to certain things, certain desires or impulses, we end up getting ourselves in trouble. You eat enough potato chips, this doesn't button like it used to. 
We won't talk any more about that. But it could go in other areas, such as, such as that the whole affair thing is you're married, but you start to look at somebody else, and then you start to have conversation, and it starts out very casual, but this impulse and this desire in you to be accepted and loved, maybe you're not getting that quite as much at home as you want, and so you follow that desire and that immediate impulse, and you end up in an affair that you never meant to have. Same thing is true in the area of pornography. The, the rampant use of that, I want to satisfy a desire that, if, that helps me. And so I go to that. And so that may, that may be one of those things. The truth is that pornography and adultery and anything like that, that a guy would go to, they're destructive behaviors. And God's calling us to guard against those. So older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. And then the, the last part is to be sound. To be sound. And if you read this and look at the sentence structure, it's to be sound in faith, to be sound in love, and to be sound in perseverance. To be sound in faith, to have a solid understanding of what it means to be saved, and then to know how to walk through life in Christ or abide in Him, that John 15 passage. That's what it means to be sound in faith. To be sound in love is to have an unconditional love. See, I think Paul writes this for older men in particular because older men have experienced the slander and the disrespect throughout their life at some point, and they understand what it means to love somebody even when they're not loved back. So to have unconditional love or agape love for people. To respond to hurts in the way that Jesus did. Third one is to, to be sound in perseverance. Or not swayed. The, the idea here is to be not swayed by awful circumstances. Or when your faith is tested. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians knowing that their circumstances were tough. Here's what he wrote. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3 he said, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. What did Paul understand about the Thessalonian church that he also wants Titus to understand as he's sharing with older men? That our hope is in Christ and it's not anywhere else. That if we're going to persevere, to be steadfast, if we're going to be in faith and in love and persevere in this thing we call life, that our hope has to be wrapped up in Christ, and we have to understand it's much bigger than just the 24 hours we're living in. Romans 3, 4 says, or 5, verses 3 and 4, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. I don't even like that. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character hope. Carrie Newhoff said this, and I think there's, this is even on a slide, character development. Character development, for the most part, doesn't happen in some monastery with stone walls and dank cellars. It happens in the grind of everyday life. 
So approximately 30 years after the resurrection, Paul is telling Titus that older men are to be these things for the purpose of maintaining or guarding sound doctrine so that the gospel can be intact, so that relationship with him can be fostered. So the first thing we have to understand is older men, this is the first point, older men help us to envision the biblical standard. Older men help us to envision the biblical standard. So if you're an older guy, if somebody younger looks at you, I hope that they see the biblical standard. Titus 2.6, we'll move to young men. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Young men are in here, and you're going, I looked around, I found somebody older, I'm considering myself a younger man, and I only have one thing to worry about. All I have to do is be sensible. There's, there's nothing else in that sentence for me. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Well, that, that word urge is that Greek word, and we've heard it before, parakaleo, and it means to invite or summons or come alongside. And although the list is short, there are two things happening here. Paul has in mind the younger men would be discipled by older men. That younger men ought to be able to look to older men in that list of characteristics and say, if I'm going to be sensible, I look there for my wisdom. I look there for what it means to live out a life that honors Christ. And then Paul, I think, also knew the pitfalls of younger men. And so he, li- he made the list really easy to be sensible. You know, if, if anybody understood this, this, it was Paul. You think about Paul's younger life. Here, here we're Paul toward the end of his life. But you, you remember Paul in his previous life. Not previous like before he was born life, but, but before he was born again life, yes. Jump back to, to early Acts, Acts chapter 6. And we, we run across a passage where it talks about Paul. And we understand reading some of his letters and what kind of follower of religion he was. That he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. That he was an up-and-coming young man making his way through the hierarchy of religious order. So Paul knew that. We see him at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And, and he was really, I think, at this point, tapping his, this look back at his own ambition. Saying, if, if I were to just look at guys that were following Christ, my life would have even been different. But I'd fallen into a trap of thinking I was something. So be sensible to watch your desires, to trust Christ with your impulses and your future. So the bottom line for young men is that the value of a young man in leadership is not his impulsive thought, but rather his vision for what embraces the heart of God. Young men are valuable. And so the second point is younger men help us energize a biblical vision. Young men help us visualize a biblical vision. We need guys, younger guys, to come in here and say, this is what God's called us to do. This is what Scripture says, and we see how this plays out. We're looking forward, and we want to to be part of that. 
So younger men help us energize a biblical vision. Then in verse 7, it kind of hones it down to what Titus is supposed to be about. In all things, show yourself an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignify, there it is again, sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Titus's list is a little longer than younger men, but he is a young man. He's to be an example of good deeds. And that word, to, to be an example of good deeds, really means to have an impression. Now, this is, this is going to call for some of you guys to be um, less prideful than you are. All right? How many of you guys at one point have hit a, a drywall, have hit some drywall, like punched it? Good, slip up your hand. Don't be shy. You might give in. You, you're done with it now. You're not doing it this morning. It should be a done deal, right? I've been there. That's what it means to urge, is to hit something and leave an impression. And so what Paul is telling Titus, he's not telling, hey, Titus, hit people. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is and live in such a way that it makes an impression and stays there. It's hard to pull, it's hard to pull a dent out of drywall when you hit it. You can patch it, but you can't pull it back. Paul is telling, telling Titus, have an impression, leave a mark. Titus, Titus's job was to influence people. So has God, how has God set you apart to influence those around you? Second thing is to be, have purity in doctrine. That means just to guard against rust, against corruption. If you've lived up north at all, you understand that's just part of owning a car. My dad would pull the car in the garage when he knew, because we lived in Pittsburgh and there was salt on the road, we came in the garage and he's out there with a bucket and water and wiping off as much as he could possibly see of the car, trying to get all that out to avoid the corrosion that could take place. And Titus is, Titus is told to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine is to guard against the corruption of doctrine or the compromise of the gospel. To be dignified, to be worthy of respect. It's that 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. It doesn't stop there, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. To be sound in speech. Understanding what James wrote, that the tongue is dangerous. Paul told the Colossian church that. He says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And then in this passage, we get to this part, so that. And there's, a, there's a response to this. So that the opponent or the antagonist, the adversary, will be put to shame and have nothing bad to say about us. Well, we don't even need to talk about the interpretation of that. To be put to shame, so they'd have nothing to say. And so the encouragement for us is to live in such a way 
that we glorify God, and in so doing, we become closer to God in this whole area of sound doctrine and living out the gospel before others. So what kind of shoe print are you leaving? If you're uh, an older man, what kind of shoe print are you leaving? It is easier for somebody to follow in your footsteps if your shoe print is bigger. And so older men, at whatever age, leave the biggest shoe print you possibly can so that those that follow can step into that spot and navigate life in such a way that it brings glory to God. Step into a footprint. Younger men, step into a footprint that honors Christ. So I want to ask some questions. We'll be done. Are you setting, and this is for guys, but you can, you can change around these words just a little bit to apply to ladies. Are you setting an example of biblical manhood? Only you can answer that. Are you being the man or woman that God has called you to be? And then for the application part of this, what is one action step that you could take to be more clear-headed, dignified, sensible, solid in your faith, love, and perseverance? What's one action step that you could take this week? See, this is a clear path of relationship between you and God. It guards that. Because you know that when you sin, it affects your relationship with Him. And so God calls us to live out a holy life, yes, for the benefit of those that are around us, that follow us, and that are looking at us, and, and our witness, and all those things. But it's really a benefit of our life before God. Matthew 6, 30, 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This is another one of these things that I probably won't quote ever again, but it's a German proverb, and it says this, What is the use of running when you are not on the right road? So what's the road God has called you to be on? What does your life look like before Him now? And what does it need to look like going forward? Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. 